Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Lighthouse. Uh, we are so glad to be here with you this morning. We're so glad to see some familiar faces. Uh, I pray that all of you out there watching are doing well. Um, let's all stand together and worship together.
don't know about you, but I am really thankful for that grace. Um, it really allows us to to become a new creation, to put away the old self, to put on this new identity that's free from bondage, that's free from anything that held us captive before. So let's sing this song together, proclaiming that new identity in Christ.
can go ahead and grab a seat. Welcome to those of you who are at home right now. Really, really miss you, but I'm really grateful to be back. Some of, some of the couple of the people in here were like, what are you doing back? Aren't you supposed to be on vacation? And yeah, but uh, this is where I wanted to be. I wanted to be with family. And I had also heard that Jeff had never in his entire career taught two weeks in a row, so I did not want to miss that. Come on. So I'm excited for that. One of the things, though, that is really heavy on my heart this morning is as Kat and I were kind of wrapping up uh, in, in the Redwoods and we were packing up our tent with the boys and we got on the road, as soon as we got to wine country, uh, the smoke, we began to see the smoke in the sky. And as we continued on through uh, San Francisco and, and, and then on back home, it only got worse and darker. And as we've looked at the map, uh, there's a tremendous amount of fire going on in our state, and I know el elsewhere as well, but we have seen firsthand the devastation and the lives that are being upturned right now. And this really has been a year of people running to the front lines. I mean, it began with nurses and doctors who ran to the front lines of COVID. Uh, it continued with police officers and first responders who were running to the front lines uh, of, uh, of the demonstrations and the riots. And then it continues now with firefighters and other first responders who are putting their lives on the line, on the front line right now. And I just wanted to take a moment and pray for those who are being affected by the fires and those who are running to the front line. So if you bow your heads with me. Father God, we thank you uh, that you modeled for us running to the front line and putting your life on the line, Jesus. We thank you that you loved us enough to sacrifice yourself. And we pray for those who are, who are loving others so well that they are willing to place their lives on the line. God, we lift up those who are in the path of these fires. We lift up those who are being affected by the smoke. We lift up those who are choosing to run to the front lines and place their lives in danger to help others. And we pray, God, that you would send rain. We pray, Father, that you would cool the sun. You made it stop for a time. Can you just make it cool off a bit? Father God, we lift up those who are being impacted. And God, I don't want to just myopically look at California. We look at our world and say we recognize there is tremendous pain in our planet. We live in a broken, sin-scarred world. We know that we are not promised comfort. We know that we are not promised easy, carefree lives. We know that at the end of the day, all of our stuff will ultimately disintegrate. Even these bodies that we walk around in will break down. We thank you for the hope that we have in you. Now we pray, Father, that you would glorify yourself even in the midst of it. Would you advance your kingdom purposes and your plans through your sons and your daughters even in this time? And I pray that you would speak to me through Jeff as he comes and shares the message with us today. We pray this in Jesus in your holy name. Amen. Oh, it's always good to have you back. You never know when Eric's coming back, but you know when he's back, right? You got to... You got to make room, so I'm super grateful to, to do this with my brother, and uh, I'm really excited about the day. I don't know if you guys start the morning off excited on Sundays, but I feel like I've been working on the message the entire week. So since I've been working on it the entire week, I've been like, can't wait for Sunday. And so I woke up this morning and grabbed a cup of coffee and turned on the news, and for the first time, the news decided to say something good. It said, 
Things are getting better in Orange County. The count is going down in Orange County. Hospitalization is going down and deaths are going down. Schools may reopen. I was, I was like, was like applauding by myself. I was like, yes, go. There's no one in the front room. It's like 6.30 in the morning. But I'm like, yes, go, God, go. Open the doors back up to the schools. Hey, if, the, uh, if they make it so um, airplanes can fly and they only have to have one seat in between, you know what that means for us? We can fly with one seat in between. It's just, it's getting closer, guys. It's getting closer. Hang in there. Stay encouraged. Be strong. I guarantee you the Lord knew we'd be in this place at this time with this church. And that's why this message is so exciting, right? We get to, we get to read the book of Acts, the beginning of the history of the church, an account from 2,000 years ago, and yet find absolute relevance in it today. And I know that for me, last week, just kind of hearing that whole thing about Paul's great hope and the power of the resurrection was super strong. Um, I'm not used to getting a lot of texts and emails from you guys. So maybe my midweek email made you feel like you needed to do all that. To whatever avail that was, thank you. But I'm, I'm really encouraged. If you have a prayer request or something, instead of just emailing and texting me saying, go God and thank you. It'd be great to get some more prayer requests as the elders are meeting again on Wednesday and praying for those. And there is a prayer group that is also Zoom meeting on Sundays that Ken is hosting. And so we want to really get back to just digging into prayer. Uh, we know that the prayer of a righteous man availeth much, and we want to continue to stay focused in prayer. So would you help us to do that as well? Somebody asked me last week if I could slow down. And I just want to tell you guys something. I, I can do a lot of things. I really can, but I can't slow down today. Uh, we, had, we did 24 last week, right? And I'll do a quick summary on 24, but I have to get through 25 and 26 so that I can tell you about the story in 27 today. So I just want to apologize in advance. I don't know how long the message is going to be. I don't know how much time it's going to take. And there's a good possibility at some point I'm going to say way too much. But I just want you to know something, that every part of everything I'm going to say today has been bathed in prayer, has been thoughtfully gone over. And I can assure you this, that the hope that Paul had 2,000 years ago, he has definitely been conveying that to me. And that's what I want to share with you this morning. 24 ended very uniquely. Paul was going through this trial with Felix. And what happens is, is Felix doesn't find any, anything wrong with him. Matter of fact, as soon as the trial ends, he invites his wife, Drusilla, to come in and actually sit with this prisoner. This person who's being persecuted is now being asked to sit with the very governor who's trying to persecute him, and he asks for information. And to that, Paul continues to give counsel, and to that, Paul continues to testify about the goodness of Jesus Christ. But for some reason, in order to gain favor, Felix simply just leaves Paul in jail for two more years. Two more years, he's done nothing wrong. And what he does is while he's in jail, he sends for him often. He sends for him repeatedly. And he hopes for one thing. Not that the information that Paul's going to share with him will change his life. But you know what he hopes for? Is that Paul will bribe him. Because then if Paul bribes him during this time that he's in jail, it substantiates. That's why this guy is an insurrector. He is the leader of this Nazarene sect and he's worthy of it. But guess what Paul never does? He never breaks stride. And so just as it is in the world around us, that particular governor's time comes and goes, and 25 ushers in a new governor. Now, why this guy's name is Porcius Festive, I don't know, because I can't say Felix and Festive over, I keep hybriding the names into a conglomerate of many different things, but the new governor comes on in 25, 
And what does the new governor do? The same thing the old governor does. A series of trials. I mean, Paul's already been found innocent, but this guy's in the jail. And so he needs to do what he needs to do. So as a governor, he calls a trial. And he goes through the whole rigmarole of asking him this. And did you do that? And are you this? And Paul, same thing. Calm before men, clear conscience, gives his a testimony, gives his thing. And guess what happens? Festus finds nothing wrong with Paul and no reason for him to be jailed. But during the event, Paul mentions to him that he's Roman and that he ultimately will plead before Caesar. And now he's got his hands tied. So a chance encounter happens where the king, King Agrippa, happens to come. He's a governor to do that kind of pomp and splendor that governors and kings like to do. And during that time now, Festus says, hey, the, the, king of, the king of Jerusalem is here. Agrippa, who else would know everything about the rules and regulations? Maybe he can find some wrong in him. So he sets up what? Another trial. Chapters 24 through 26 is just one trial after another trial after another trial. And now he has to stand before the king and give the same testimony in the same trial. And I love that two years of standing before one guy not found guilty. Now he stands before the next guy not found guilty. So now he's going to throw him in front of the king. And in 25, we find out not only does he stand before the king, but he begins to give testimony. And he begins to give testimony in such a way that as he's giving testimony, something happens. Something happens. Festive, the governor of, of Jerusalem, he actually yells out to, to Paul and says, you, you've got to be crazy. Something's wrong with you. All the studying and everything that you've done, maybe it's made you a little crazy. And Paul just continues, status quo. He continues sharing. And then he goes into this detailed account starting in 26. He goes into this detailed account where he actually starts telling King Agrippa, not only am I been saved, but let me tell you about my conversion on the road to Damascus. This is the king of Judaism. This is the king of Jerusalem. This is the king who knows everything there is to know about being Jewish. And here goes Paul now with another opportunity to present Christ to him. And Paul just goes into it and says, you know what? I was going to persecute these people because they were following this sect. I was going to persecute him because this Jewish king, they believed in, he was dead. But this Jewish king actually met me on the road to Damascus with the rules and regulations to go persecute them. And I can't go back, king. There's no way I can go back. I just want you to know that he is real. And after Festus yelled at him originally, now the king yells at Paul and he says, hold on a second. Do you think you can convert me that quickly? Can you imagine that? Now the king feels this conversion coming on. He feels in his heart that what Paul is saying is actually, and he, and he refutes it. He says, you think you convert me that quickly? I just can't help but finish with what Paul says. Paul replies, whether now or whether later, I only hope this. I hope both you and everyone here becomes as I am, lest the chains, of course. Is that calm? Is that cool? Is that collect or what? He's like, you know what, King? This is what it's about. This is what it's been about from the beginning. This is what it continues to be about now. And nothing's going to change. I love the fact that they thought he was crazy. You know, 2 Corinthians 13 says, if it seems we are crazy to bring glory to God, then we, and if we are in our right minds, it's for your benefit. But how many times have we realized that what we plead when we plead the blood of Christ sounds like insanity to people, Right? And here's Paul. He's like, I don't, doesn't matter what it sounds like. I have a clear conscience before God and men. And I can tell you guys this, this is the truth. This is the thing that changes lives. So let me pray. And then we're going to start speed reading. That was the speed summary. 
Speed reading will start with 1 through 12 in Acts, and we will get to 27, 27, the main body of the story, which is the actual shipwreck. Father God, I thank you for the morning. I thank you for every opportunity that's been presented in this building to present the name of Jesus Christ. I pray for those that are out there on the front line. I pray for for those that are just in our community. I pray for those that are listening to this message. Today, right now, there's people listening to this message. I pray that the message, even as it continues to go out throughout the week, will find that individual, will find that person who this morning is waking up saying, why am I in the midst of this trial? Whether it's a personal trial, whether it's a professional trial, or whether it's a spiritual trial, they're finding themselves asking the question, why? And I pray that the message that we will hear today from Paul screams to them, there is a reason for everything in God's season. There is a time and a place for everything. And even adversity and trials work to the benefit of God. I pray this morning that you will bless us as we walk through this Give us the ears to hear and keep us from distractions. We ask it your son's precious and holy name. Amen. So what's going to happen here is they're going to get ready to go on a journey. So let's read the first part of this, Acts 27, 1 through 12, as the journey gets ready to begin. And this is uh, 1 through 12. So when it was decided that we could sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from... Adamantium, and we sailed for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and there we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. Don't you like all those simple names in the beginning there? <laughs> wow. The next day we landed in Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so that they might provide for his needs. From there we put out to sea again and passed the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Sicily and Pamphylia, we landed in Myra and Lycia. Then the centurion found an Alexandrian ship heading for Italy, and he put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Sindus. And the wind did not allow us to hold our course. So we sailed to the Lee of Crete. I love that, Lee of Crete. Uh, opposite Salmon, like we all know all these sailing terms, right? I, I hope you guys understand all this sailing terms. I'll get to them in a second. And we moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lycia. And much time had been lost sailing already because dangerous, because it had become, become dangerous, and now it was the Day of Atonement. So he's referring to the time of the year that the Jews know. So it's late in fall, um, October, November. And Paul warns them, men, I can see in our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to the ship and its cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, Julius, instead of listening to what Paul said, he followed the advice of the captain and the owner of the ship. And since this particular harbor, Fair Havens, was unstable to winter in for the majority of the, the season, they decided they should move on. Now, I need to put the map up because we just covered like an amazing amount of area Oh, where can I stand? Uh, okay, so in the bottom right-hand corner of this map, I'm leaving the camera. Bottom right-hand corner, we see Caesarea at the very corner, and he's going to sail north all the way up to the corner of Cyprus. From that point on, he's going to head to the seaport of Rhodes and Lycia, and then they're going to travel around that little inlet, and then they're going to come out of the bottom of Crete. Now, at the bottom of Crete, in Fair Havens, where the actual first arrow stops... That's where this 12, verse 12 ends. They're there, and then Paul's going to go into this dissertation about we should not leave. 
This is the wrong kind of season to be traveling in. And we've already had difficulties getting here. We've already had to switch ships. They started in a Roman cargo ship, remember? And then now they've switched to this Alexandrian ship, which is going to turn out to be an Egyptian grain ship. And he's saying, you know what? This is as far as we should go. And then they say, no, we're going to continue to go on, but they're going to try to just move up 40 miles to that next little dot, Phoenix. If you can see on the map, Cotta, Phoenix is just 40 miles up. But because of where Phoenix is located, it's got a southern facing port. It would be better for them to harbor there. I also hope you noticed the we in that. Did you notice the we set sail and we went here? Now it mentions one of the guys. It mentions, it mentions that they're taking Aristarchus with them, but who's the other we? It's Luke. It's the author of the book of Acts. Okay, Luke is also the author of Luke. And Luke is a physician. And because we have physicians in the building, and because you guys all know a physician, one of the interesting points about having Luke on the journey is this. Like a physician, he's literally going to be taking notation all the way through. And it's going to, be, it's going to prove to be very important because Luke's account of this makes this thing absolutely quantifiable, amazing. So there's, he's a centurion. I also mentioned Julius was a centurion, which comes from the word century, which means he's in charge of 100 men. So there's 100 soldiers that Julius is in charge of, and there's 276 people total on this boat. The rest would be comprised of sailors and the rest uh, prisoners or passengers of friends of Paul. As they get ready to go on this whole journey, that whole journey represents over 1,400 miles. But most of our story will actually start right there in Fair Havens, and then as they drift to the left to Malta, the two weeks that are encompassed in that time. They end up switching ships uh, in verses 13 to 26. And what happens is they start off with kind of a soft wind. And 13 says a gentle wind began to blow. Um, so they had this opportunity. They moved out to Crete. But before long, all of a sudden, it turns into a hurricane force. Remember, Paul said, hey, let's just stay where we are in Fair Havens. This is a bad time of the season. And they're like, no, it's only 40 miles up. This is not going to be a problem. We should be able to move along the coast. But as uh, verse 13 and 14 says, this, the storm wind blows down and it caught them in the storm. And then in 16 says, as they passed the lee side of an island called Cauda, you can see that on there, um, they tried to secure the lifeboat because everything's being tossed and turned around. And the ship's just basically being driven by the sea. They're not actually able to steer the ship anymore. They took such a violent beating in verse 18 um, that they had to start throwing cargo overboard. Now, in a cargo ship, when you start to throw cargo overboard, that's an indication that things are not going the way you want. And the sailors know that once the cargo goes overboard, their pay goes overboard. So that is really going to be a last-ditch effort to start doing that. But they already are starting to do that. This is interesting. And verse 20 says, Neither sun or stars appeared for many days, and the storm continued raging as they finally gave up, gave up hope of being saved. So 2,000 years ago, the, uh, the skies become important for sailing, right? You need to see to navigate. So not only is it there's no skies to see, but the weather's so bad that it's like dark. So it's, it's going to be very, it's gonna be very uh, dark and gloomy, and everyone's going to, even the sailors themselves are actually going to start thinking they're not going to be saved. Down in verse 21, it says, a long time without f food. Paul finally stands up to them, hey, guys, listen to me. If we're going to make it to Crete, um, you guys should not have done this. You guys should not have done this voyage. But since you have, I'm going to do one thing for you. 22. I'm going to urge you to keep up your courage because none of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. 
And, and that's crazy information for guys that are sailors that are thinking it's, it's already doomed. We've already thrown the cargo over. This is not good. And then he explains why in verse 23. Because last night, an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve, he stood beside me and he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who you sail with. So all 276 people, 275, including himself. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we will run aground on some island. Now that's an interesting component because where they are, once they leave Fair Havens, where that little white box is in kind of the middle of the map, it says Paul's ship is lost. Where they are, they're in the middle of the sea and they can't see anything. And they haven't been able to see anything for two weeks. So not only does the angel tell them that there's hope and they're not going to be lost, but he also indicates where they're going to crash into an island. I think that's the first time that Paul actually gives the crew some form of hope because they know nothing. They know nothing's going on. But because, the, because Paul had been told by the angel to have hope, Paul's reflecting back to the time when he was on the road to Damascus. And the, angel of the, and, and the angel of the Lord, the Lord himself actually spoke to him and said, why are you persecuting me? Paul has great confidence from back then. He's like, guys, I've already, I've already been through this before. When the Lord speaks to you, when an angel of the Lord speaks to you, you can have absolute confidence that nothing wrong is going to happen other than what's intended to happen. This account is so detailed. If you actually read Acts 20, uh, 27 from the beginning of the shipwreck all the way to 40, if you read the details and just start making notes, what they do with the sails, what they do with the anchors, how they uh, bound the boat up. They actually bind the boat up when it's in the storms. They drop ropes on one side, let them float to the other side, pull them back up and bind the boat up. All the different things that you will find about this is this is considered to be, by scholars, not just by religious people, but by scholars, one of the most factual maritime accounts ever recorded. I find that interesting, that something that God has had Dr. Luke do, this is just in his wheelhouse, right, to make notes and stuff like that, but this ends up being something that provides great confidence in me. I think too often times we kind of read the Bible as kind of like a conglomerate of stories or something like that, but that's not what this is saying. This story is actually considered for 2,000 years ago how a sailor would have traveled to be one account that you can read, for factually speaking, is one of the most, uh, especially the historians say, is in, it's absolutely quantifiably factual. And with all that as the background, as them completely set a sea, all the different verses that happens, that lower left squiggle, Malta, this is where we're going to find ourselves actually getting shipwrecked and the story actually takes on a whole new sequence. So turn with me now, if you're in Acts, all the way down or push down to verse 27, and let's read the actual shipwreck account itself. On the 14th night, they were still being beaten, driven across the Adriatic Sea, when about midnight, the sailors sensed they were approaching land. So the only way they might have sensed they were approaching land is maybe they heard waves, right? If you're getting closer to land, you can sometimes hear waves or some kind of sound. And in light of that, they took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep or 20 fathoms. And then a short time later, they took soundings again and found that it was 90 fathoms. So from the boat bottom to the, to the sandbar was 120 feet and then they traveled a period of time again, and then they sounded again, and now it's 90 feet. And what the sailors realized is, when, as you approach a shoreline, the shoreline will come out to the boat. They can see that in smaller increments, they know they're getting closer to something. So that's what that whole process is going to help them understand, which causes them in 29, fearing that they're going to be dashed against the rocks, they drop four anchors from the stern. For you non-boating people, the stern is the back of the boat, the back of the boat. 
The bow is the front of the boat. This is good. Starboard is the right of the boat. Port, four letters, is the left of the boat. Now we all know something nautical that's useless to us, except for Don. Wherever you are, Don, we know that you know all about nautical information. In an attempt to escape from the ship, now the sailors, that's one of the three groups on the boat, the sailors let the lifeboat down in the sea, pretending that they were going to lower some anchors from the bow of the boat. Okay, so most of the action's happening at the back of the boat. They're letting these four anchors down, and they're trying to tie them off in a hope that the boat can then be pulled, but that the anchors will then hold fast so that it doesn't drive them into the shore. The sailors realize that the people are doing that, the soldiers and the prisoners are doing that, and the sailors think, this, is, this thing's doomed. We're going to die. And the sailors then move the contingency to the front of the boat and act like they're going to lower that lifeboat that they had pulled up. Remember at the storm beginning, they pulled that up? They set that thing down, and they're getting ready to actually leave, acting like they're going to set out anchors. And pretending that they were going to lower some anchors down, Paul says to the centurion, right, the guy's in charge of Maljulius, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So then the soldiers, the people that Julius is in charge of, he, they cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. And this brings me to my first point. What it shows me is sometimes a storm, the storms that happen in life are not a reflection of us doing something wrong, but of God working something through the wrong thing, right? So Paul has not done anything to deserve any of these trials that he's already been in. Paul did not do anything wrong with all those trials. And so what he learned was God was using those trials to put him in front of a group of people. And just as he was in trials there, now Paul is in these storms and he's realizing the same mindset. He didn't do anything wrong. He told them to stay in fair havens. He said, this is not the kind of weather you should be traveling in. Paul has done everything right. And yet Paul is once again in the midst of a terrible storm. A life-threatening storm that probably without Paul would have killed everyone on the ship. But Paul maintains the same mindset. Trials, wrecks, whatever it is, God is going to use it all for his good. And for a purpose that none of us are aware of, but according to the angel, will ultimately, ultimately lead to me speaking to Caesar. And then I started thinking about myself. Whenever I counsel with people, whenever I talk to people and, and bad things are involved or trials involved, one of the things that you often hear people say is, what did I do wrong so that this situation would occur? Right? Isn't that kind of the natural inclination? Is like, you did something wrong, that's why the bad thing is happening. That's not the case. Sometimes we as believers, sometimes as followers of Christ, it's not about us doing anything wrong at all. It's just about existing and being a believer of Christ. And in that, it's sufficient to realize that in this life, you will have trials, right? And Paul's kind of bringing this to light. And I kind of think that's got to be encouraging to someone who's sitting around today thinking, what did I do wrong? Think about just like, for instance, COVID. How many people are sitting around this morning thinking, what did we do wrong to bring on something as horrific as this? What happened to Romans 8? I thought all things work together. How is COVID working all things together? I'm a pastor. I can ask that question and pray about it. And this is what I got back. Why is it hanging out with our family is so hard? Why is it the whole point of what I remember my dad said he was going to work for back in the 50s was he was going to work all day long to provide for who? provide for us as family like the most important thing that i grew up with was this idea that family was the most important thing and now what is covid doing it's a hang out with your family all day long and you literally have people that have not only threshold but they're beyond threshold 
about hanging out with their family. It's not on the news. People aren't talking about it. But relationships inside the house are so destroyed right now. People, I can tell you, domestic violence, suicide, anxiety, like never before. That's what's ultimately happening behind closed doors right now. Because we've lost the ability to see that being forced together to eat together again. I mean, when's the last time you actually ate as a family at a dinner table? I mean, halfway through COVID, I sat down and I realized, oh my gosh, we are all at the table. We're all eating. COVID is not a punishment. Paul's shipwreck is not a punishment. It's an opportunity to see God's hand because God is going to reveal something in this shipwreck. God is going to reveal something as he already has in all the trials. God is always trying to reveal something to us about something that we could not accomplish on our own that God can only do through the trial. And that's why it's a lie when people tell Christians, just come to Christ and your life is good, you know? Go, God, and then poof, good. That's not what it is. You come to Christ and you pick up your cross daily and you're going to go through trials and you're going to go through things that are not fair. And I know the world says that when you go through a trial that your attitude should be me, myself, and I. I mean, if anyone's going to get saved on the ship, it needs to be me, myself, and I first. But that's not what you see in Paul. Not only is Paul not concerned with me, myself, and I, but he's actually paying attention from the back of the ship, right? While the anchors are down. He sees the contingency of sailors, the guys who are sailing the ship, the people that know what to do. He sees them moving as a group. And he follows them. And he pays attention. And then he tells them, if you guys leave, everyone, this is going to affect everyone on the ship. The only way we survive is we stay together. Church, can I tell you another bonus principle from that? The only way we're going to make this is if we stay together. It's always easy to run and hide in a storm. It's always easy to find another church or find another friend or find another wife or find another whatever it is that fills your gap because it's trial, it's too much work. But that's where we really find out something. You know, I found it interesting. It said the pagans were praying. Like they were praying on the ship. Oh, please. There's no atheists in foxholes. That's what my my military friends always tell me. There's no atheists in war, right? Because everybody needs religion or faith or hope or something in life and death crisis. And that's kind of what it feels like right now. It feels like the world is saying that this is a life and death crisis. And to the people that have lost their light to this, my heart goes out to them. But let me tell you something. It's been appointed once for man to be born and once to man to die. And how you die is absolutely insignificant. What matters is, will you live for eternity with Christ? We are overrating the value of COVID. We are overrating the value of being sick. What this trial tells us is death is overrated. Do you know who Christ is? Do you have absolute confidence in what his word says? Because if it does, and it means something to you, you can overcome the storms in life. Watch what happens in 33. Just before dawn, Paul urged them to eat. For it has been 14 days, he said, and you have been in constant suspense, and you've gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. And I urge you, take some food. You need to survive. And not one of you will lose a single hair from your head. After he said this, he took some bread He gave thanks to God in front of all of them. He broke it in and he began to eat. And what happened? They were encouraged, all of them. They ate some food themselves and altogether there was 276 of them. And when they had eaten as much as they wanted, they then ultimately lightened the ship up by throwing the grain into the sea. This is, I don't know about you, but I felt like it was communion. 
I felt like Paul's like, you know what, guys? I know you haven't listened to me the whole time, but here's what's going to happen. We're going to eat some bread, and we're going to trust that God is good, and you're going to trust that God actually has a plan in the middle of the storm that's going to make sense, but you guys are going to need energy. And this brings me to my second point. Storms don't develop character. They reveal it. Right? Too much, of, too much of what's happening right now is we are in the storm. There, there's no preparation. You can't run down the storm and buy a book right now. It's too late. The storm is here. It's been raging for four months. If you find yourself in the sky is falling position right now, it's revealing something about your character. And none of us are perfect. I always tell everyone, I'm not perfect. My boss is. That's not Eric. That's Jesus. Right? I'm not perfect. My boss is. I... I walk on water all the time and I sink all the way down to the bottom, right? But if my hope is in Christ, if my understanding of the resurrection is so, then when I'm in a storm, the character that God would have me to be is one who's calm, hopeful, and encouraging. Because that's what he designed us for, right? The rest of the world is going, ah, you don't have a mask on. Uh, we were in the grocery store and uh, they, you know, they got the little X's now. And it's not buried treasure. It's because you got, that's how you got to stay. And people have like a new stupid stick that they want to wear that tells you how far they are and all the ridiculous stuff they're trying to do. And I don't know what I was doing. I'm, I'm looking down and distracted as I often am at the store because I'm not designed to be at a store. And I ended up going within a one foot of the six foot bubble of the individual in front of me. And that was so offensive to that individual, they instantly let me know that I had broke the bubble. And I couldn't help but think, man, where is your trust in God at? Where is your hope and where is your faith at, world? Because if your hope is in the six-foot bubble, let me tell you what else is six-foot. The grave. And there's no joke in that. It's simply to say this. That our hope, the only hope we have in the grave is that Paul says what? To die is what? Gain. So I'm not saying take your mask off and run around and, and go crazy. I'm just simply saying live in such a way that shows the great hope that is in you. Paul has the hope of the redemption. It's not going to change. He's oozing calm in the storm. And Paul is now going to move on the storm from captive, right? He's a captive. He's a prisoner. But now he's telling the soldiers to do something. And what are they doing? They're doing it. And who's now under the soldier's control? The sailors. Guess who just moved from captive to captain? Paul. That's a huge game changer for you if you're thinking, you know, only the meek inherit the earth is bothering you. You've got to understand, in, in God's economy, there's something attractive about being humble. Not maybe to you or me, but to God it is. Because he can promote the humble. He can use the humble. He can lift the humble up and put them in a position that represents the very heart of God. Because Paul's not trying to save himself. He's trying to save the entire ship. That's so different from you and me. I love the fact that Paul tells them to eat. Sometimes we try to make faith so complex. Oh, you're weak and you're tired and... You know, maybe you should do a couple of this and that. It's like, hey, if you're weak and tired, have you eaten anything? No? Maybe you should start with a sandwich. Maybe before we do three hours of counseling, let's just start with a sandwich and a glass of water. Why? Because this puppy's going to break up. This ship is going down. And you're going to need energy. 
to swim, to float, to do whatever it is to get into the shore. And I think what that told me is this, is God, when God provides a way out, it still requires us to do the thing that he, you know, we still have a role in that, right? Like God's saying, hey, look, the ship is going to crash. It's going to be on an island. It's going to happen in exactly where I told you it's going to happen. All this is going to happen and no one's going to die, but you still have to do something. What's that? You got to swim. Some of them don't even swim. In the end, we're going to find out some float in. But the reality is everyone's not going to die and everyone has a role to do. And that's more, the most important thing is don't save cargo, guys. A lot of you guys are trying to save cargo right now. Save lives. Save lives. Cargo's already going over. Tackle's already going over. If you read the account, it's, they've done every single maritime step required to do what they can. In the end, it all goes overboard and gone. Alive is the thing that matters. One life matters. Save that life. Do what you can to save that life. That soul will live on for eternity. Make the effort to save them. Look what happens in 39. Daylight comes. They didn't recognize the land, but they saw a bay and it has a sandy beach. And they decided to run the ship aground if they could. So now they cut loose those four anchors that are holding it and they let, the, let, let them into the sea. And at the same time, they untied the ropes that held the rudders and they hosted the foresail to the wind and they made for the beach. So the foresail is the sail in front of the boat. The anchors were holding so the boat wouldn't go forward. They now see that if they go forward, there's a sandy beach. So right there at 90 feet, they cut the four anchors. They hoist that front foresail and they're going to try to run that ship right into the ground right there at the beach. Unfortunately, the ship hits the sandbar. It runs aground. The bow, which is the front of the boat, it holds fast. And then the actual turning of the tide and the turning of the wave, as it rolls the boat left and right, it literally begins to disintegrate the boat. It tears it into pieces. Now, because I read that in the beginning of this, before I even got to any scholarly notes or commentaries, one of the first things I read was that this was such a historical account. My brain started going... Well, if that thing crashed in 90 feet, like I've gone diving before, you can, 90 feet's not that far down. Why can't they go out there and find something from the boat? You know, they know exactly where it happened. If you put the picture back up really quick again, they know exactly where it happened. They know exactly the bay and they know all these different things. Why can't they just go to Malta to this particular zone? Um, wouldn't that be great if they could? Can you put up the next picture? And it turns out there happens to be a museum on Malta, where they crashed. It's called the Malta Maritime Museum. Doesn't that make sense? Inside that museum is a display of all the things they found in that area, the bay, the zone, all around the island, including four Egyptian anchors found at 90 feet at the front of a bay where two points converge called St. Paul's Bay. Wow. That's a lot of luck. Because turns out, when they clean those puppies, can you see on the bottom left hand of that front anchor, it says Isis? If you look really close, I'm going off screen again, sorry TV. If you look very close right there on the bottom of that, it says I-S-I-S. The Egyptians marked their anchors with their pagan gods to communicate to other people what was going to protect them. 
And Isis on the left, and it actually says on the right, Serapis on the right, were known Alexandrian Egyptian ship names that were posted on their anchors. Which affirms that all four of those anchors came off one ship from Egypt, probably from the port of Alexandria. And what did we discover after their voyage began on a Roman cargo ship? They had to transition to a different ship from where? Alexandria. Guys, if you don't, this brings me to my third point. It, some people don't believe the Bible is history. Some people live their whole life thinking that because they grew up with flannel graph Jesus or somebody told them a story about the, the ark or something, it's like it's really difficult for us to believe. You have to understand something. The Bible is. Just like German is, just like Greek is, just like Cantonese is. You don't have to understand it for it to be. It is. It is historical. It is the reason why there's archaeology. What do you think archaeology is looking for? It's looking for things that the Bible says exist because nobody was there. Science and archaeology pr pr provide us with one thing. Don't look at God's word as just some kind of fairy table or fable. Paul didn't. And Dr. Luke made note of every single detail. Why? Because you can't recover wood from a 2,000-year-old ship. But you know what survives 2,000 years in the water? Iron. And those four silly iron anchors tell us something that happened in that bay 2,000 years ago that changed the island of Malta forever. Next week when we get to chapter 28, you are not going to believe the legacy that Paul creates on that island. I can't get too far ahead. I'll lose my brain. 90 feet of water, an archaeologist's dream, the way they communicate, and the two names converge. What, what do they say? The Egyptian gods, who the Egyptians would trust. All that because of one thing. God says it, guys, you can believe it. If it's in God's word and you haven't figured it out yet, it's okay. Take God's word at God's word. And when you're confused, yield to God's word. How's that work? One final situation on the boat that's problematic. The soldiers plan to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. The boat's breaking up. That's inevitable. Everyone's going to have to leave. But there's one last problem Paul has to overcome. Killing the prisoners was, was because if a prisoner escaped in your... If, if I'm a Roman soldier and I'm guarding someone, let's say he's a murderer. If that murderer escapes, I then stand before Caesar, guess what, as a murderer. Roman law had mandated that whatever the prisoner you were guarding was, that would be held to you if you let them go. Which tells us, the guys watching Jesus' tomb, think about that. They would have never gone to sleep. They would have never left. They would have never done nothing. Or all of them would have been held accountable for that. People don't leave their post. People don't, their only option is start slicing necks or stabbing people. Because these guys can't leave. They're prisoners. They need to die. And look what Paul does. He tells the centurion... He wants to save their lives, and he keeps them from carrying out their plans. Instead, he orders them who can swim to jump overboard and get to land. Remember, they just had great communion on there. And the rest will get there on planks and other pieces of the ship. For this way, every single person on that ship was accounted for on the land. My mind is always just one of those things where I can't help but think about the people who didn't swim. 
Like some of you are stuck on the ship and you're just like, I'm going down the ship and I just can't swim and that's, and there's no way out. Paul said everyone had to get to land. So even the people that didn't swim at some point were faced with being in the water and drowning. And the reality was they were encouraged enough to not want to drown. They believed that something was going to happen. So they grabbed a piece of wood from the ship, which God had now wonderfully broken up into beautiful little life-size rafts or bodyboards or surfboards or whatever it was. And everyone goes right into the shore. Wet, cold, tired, beaten, battered. I'm sure when we start chapter 28 next week, it's going to be nothing but doom and gloom, right? No, they go straight into fire building and celebration. Julius listening to Paul is like the crowning moment in Paul's moving from captive to captain. Julius, the guy who's in charge of all those soldiers, he listens to Paul. He cares about Paul. He finds value in Paul. There's other accounts in the Bible where a centurion comes to salvation. And what we find is the centurion says, if you just speak it, then I know it's so. Because with me, if I speak it, guess what? It's so. And we find in the Bible that that centurion who comes to the Lord, not only does he come to the Lord, but guess who else comes to the Lord? His whole household. <laughs> he's, he's a man of the man. He's going, he's going to make sure they all know. I guarantee you these soldiers are all realizing something's happened to Julius And I believe that Paul's actually going to begin to do a conversion with the entire group. Regardless of how they made it, they made it. And I couldn't help but think of this. Church, it's not how we make it. It's not how we make it to the shore. What matters is that we grab something and we keep going. It's not over until the Lord says it's over. Right? Even in the middle of a shipwreck, it doesn't get any more dire than that. And you have every reason to think it's over and done. Grab a piece of wood and go for a ride, guys, because it's not over until the Lord says it's over. And what we're going to find out next week in 28, not only is it not over, but it's about to begin all over again. He's going to change the entire history of that island. You will not believe some of the facts about it. So let me just review this. What is God saying to you today about the storms that you're in? Is it COVID? Is it health? Is it job? Is it relationship? What is God telling you today about the storm that you're in, about how you're misreading it? Woe is me. What have I done? How could you? Maybe none of that has anything to do with all that. Maybe God is using the storm to put you on Malta. We're going to find that out next week. Secondly, what is the storm revealing about your character? Are you calm in the storm? Are you at peace in the storm? Do you have, a, a, beyond a shadow of a doubt, a hope in the resurrection of Christ? Because if you do, you should be acting appropriately. Third, how much confidence do you place in God's word? Do you, do you believe it's factual? Enough that the secular world would consider an account from Acts 27 to be specifically one of the greatest maritime accounts ever recorded? Do you believe there could be anchors and all kinds of other things out there that tell us beyond a shadow of a doubt that what we read in God's word, that we were not there for, in fact, is substantiated by science, by archaeology, and by God's word? If you don't have a high view of scripture, if you, if you think it's fairy tales, and that's, that's a huge mistake that you're making. And I hope today you reconsider. And finally this, is your understanding of Christ able to see him that he can calm any situation 
any storm. And a trial that you've done nothing of, accusations in a marriage relationship, regardless of what you've been through, do you have enough hope in Christ to realize that that is not who you are? Paul was not any of the things that he was being accused of. Insurrector, rioter, troublemaker. He was none of those things. Are you allowing what other people say you are to start to affect your character? What does God say you are? What about the forgiveness of God that allows you to say that, you know what, even though I might have been a murderer, I mean, Saul was a quantified murderer. He killed Stephen. He killed other believers. That's not who God says he was going to be, though. He ends up becoming the most prolific missionary in the history of the church. I don't know where you are with it today. Maybe it's still that you just haven't even made a profession of faith, but I would encourage you today, make a profession of faith. Don't let the ship go out to sea thinking, you know what, I'm just going to move 40 miles down the thing. It's going to be fine. I don't need to worry about the storms. The storm could be coming or you might be in the storm right now, but you know what? No man has tomorrow. No woman has tomorrow. None of us have tomorrow. We have today. Make a decision, make a profession that makes a difference for the rest of your life. I'm going to have the band come back up and I'm going to pray. Father God, I know that in this message, you're speaking to many people this morning. You are telling them that they are, in fact, loved children of yours, that wherever they're sitting, wherever they're listening, whatever they're doing, um, just as Paul, they, they have to go through the reality of why are they trying to you know, make so many reasons or excuses about what's happening and instead just realize it's happening. And if it's happening, then it's happening for a reason. And maybe the reason is not about me. Maybe the whole world doesn't rotate around me. And maybe the whole world rotates around you. And maybe you're allowing this situation to happen so that I would be confronted with something, my mortality. And the fact that death is inevitable for all human beings, but life with Christ is an option that you have to play a role in. You have to eat. You have to take him in. You have to ask him into your life. And I pray this morning, if someone's listening, that they would do that. And if you would do that, would you just make that first step to open the door and say, Lord, I no longer want you to be on the outside. Come into my life. Forgive me. Know me. Be my Lord and Savior. Be my King of everything that I say, of everything that I do. May your spirit guide me. If you, if you need to do something today, I pray that you would do that. And would you let us know? Would you let us know, Lord, that you're doing that today? Because we dedicate everything that we say and everything we do. We say it in the name above all names, Jesus Christ. Amen.
I agree. That is a good day. And I just want to encourage you next week as we get to chapter 28, we're going to find out something without a shadow of a doubt that God proves is all those that were on the ship, they needed Paul, right? But what we're going to see next week is the island of Malta. They needed Paul to crash into his island. And if that doesn't say God in all things, I can't tell you what does. It's going to be an exciting week next week. God bless you. Keep the faith. Keep staying strong. Encourage. Calm in the storm. God bless you. We love you. We hope to see you guys soon. Have a wonderful day.